Good morning, church. Thank you, Christian. Hey, did you know yesterday was Christian's birthday? How about that? Imagine turning another year older. Well done, Christian. You made it. 39? I got it right. Last week was a lot of fun. Thank you for being here to celebrate the Resurrection Sunday with us. Uh, and thank you to everybody who helped out uh, setting stuff up and participating in the Good Friday services and, and Easter. And it took a lot of uh, manpower. Uh, so it was a blessing to me. It was a blessing to my family. I hope it was a blessing to you. Thank you to everybody who participated there. And thank you if you just showed up and, and had a good time. Last week, we wrapped up chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew for our Easter service. We've been plodding through the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been around here with us for a while, uh, chapter 5 was a doozy. Uh, verses 17 through 20, if you'll remember that, if you open your Bible back to chapter 5. In, in verses 17 through 20, we learned the principle that we needed moving forward for that whole chapter. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Right, So we need to still hold on to that moving forward in the Sermon on the Mount. But he also told us in verse 20, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then throughout chapter 5, he kind of dove into that. What does it look like to have your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Not in its width, remember, but in its depth, right? The, the scribes and Pharisees approached the law and trying to be as righteous as they could by making more things illegal, by being as wide as possible. But Jesus calls for a deeper righteousness into the heart of man, a heart righteousness. So chapter five, and really the whole sermon is about the heart. And then Jesus spent verses 21 through 48 Diving right into that, getting into the, the micro details of some of these things. He, he looked at the law and how his contemporary Bible teachers around him widened the law. And then he said, don't be like that. Do this instead. So murder starts in the heart. Adultery starts in the heart. Faithlessness starts in the heart. And even love for other people, love for enemies starts in the heart. That is the deeper righteousness Jesus is calling us to, a heart righteousness. But righteousness is necessarily going to be worked out in front of other people. Chapter 6 is all about that, how righteousness gets worked out. So let's find out some ways Jesus is going to tell us righteousness works itself out and stand together as we read chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and also 16 through 18. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. 
Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Please be seated as we pray. Lord, we come to your word now in humility. We ask for guidance and wisdom. Spirit, we pray that you would mold and shape our hearts to be conformed to the image of Christ by your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, form one cohesive unit to be understood together. But in that unit, there is a bit of a digression, a big important digression. And I'm sure you noticed that these verses we did not read this week. Don't worry, we're not going to skip over the Lord's Prayer. We're going to return to it next week. I think it's so important, it needs its own sermon. But for now, we're going to track with Jesus' train of thought and do these verses, really concentrate on them. Jesus' concern shifts here to how his disciples are going to work out their righteousness. First, Jesus gives a warning on public righteousness. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now look back one verse, verse 48 of chapter 5. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, if that's wrongly understood, if it's misunderstood, the disciples might be motivated to display their righteousness, to make it seem like they're perfect and in every way that they can, right? And then they'd be no different from the Pharisees who are called whitewashed tombs or a, a dirty cup with the exterior that's clean, Right? That's, that's the wrong understanding of what Jesus is saying in verse 48. So right after Jesus tells them to be perfect, he gives them a warning. So it's like this. Be perfect, but be careful. Be perfect, but be careful. Other translations say something like, beware of displaying your righteousness before other people. And I think that's really helpful. If you have the NIV or a similar translation, it might say display. <clears throat> But in the Greek, Jesus uses an even more general term than the ESV has, which has practice. It's more like beware of doing your righteousness before other people. Jesus knows that to live as a Christian in this world means that we have to do righteousness. That's Jesus's understanding of righteousness, actually. It's something that we do. Remember back to the beginning of chapter 5. We're supposed to be salt and light in the world letting our light shine, making the world taste better. It has an outward practice. The key phrase in verse 1 that we can't skip over is this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people 
in order to be seen by them. That's the warning. The issue isn't practicing righteousness. We all need to make a practice of righteousness. And the issue isn't even practicing righteousness before other people, as if righteousness can only be done inside or in secret. The issue Jesus warns us against is practicing righteousness before other people so that they'll see us do it. That's the problem. And so Jesus calls us to have a secret righteousness between us and the Father first. That's the starting point. Once again, the problem is the heart. The heart of man. Our motivation. Those who are motivated to do good things in order to be seen by other people as a righteous person have completely missed the point of the Sermon on the Mount so far. And those who are motivated to do righteousness like this will lose out on any reward the Father might have for them. This is the principle that we have to keep in mind moving forward in chapter 6. Righteousness should not be done in order to be seen by men. But we should practice righteousness to be seen by the Father. That's the right motivation. Our priority, in other words, should be the Lord. In the rest of the text today, Jesus gives three examples on how to rightly practice righteousness before God and not before men. Again, a secret righteousness. In like chapter 5, he's going to use some hyperbolic and even humorous statements in order to press the point upon us. These three things are good spiritual disciplines. Now, each of us should be cultivating good spiritual disciplines in our life. If you want to learn more about those things, I'd encourage you to join us for our discipleship class that meets before the service at 9 o'clock. Over the next 11 weeks, we're going to be covering the book Balancing the Christian Life, and many of these practices will come up and we'll discuss them at length. But the three that are before us today are giving, praying, and fasting. As we'll see, each one can be twisted to display righteousness to other people. Spiritual disciplines are a good thing. And there are many more wonderful spiritual disciplines than these three that we should be cultivating in our lives. But giving, praying, and fasting are not just the most common Christian practices, spiritual disciplines, but they're common to almost every world religion. And almost every world religion has them wrong. And many Christians do too. Because they're so common, they are ripe for abuse. So Christians ought to be conscientious about how we give, pray, and fast. So let's walk through each one of these and see what attitude Christians are supposed to have regarding spiritual disciplines, especially these three, giving, praying, and fasting, three of the most common that we should have organized in our lives. First, Jesus wants us to have secrecy in giving. Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. First, notice a new formula. 
In chapter 5, we had a formula, right, as he tackled anger and lust. And now, in these three sections, we have a new formula that Jesus is teaching us through. First, Jesus says something like, when you give, when you pray, or when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. Then Jesus gives the wrong behavior of those hypocrites, followed by a statement, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And he gives instructions on how to properly practice that discipline, followed by the statement, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus was a very good teacher. He's a very good teacher, a genius God. Come on. His formulas and ways of speaking are memorable, and they should stick with us. So it's worth pointing out here as we think through these things. Remember what Jesus says and how he says it. In verse 2, Jesus approaches the topic of giving to the needy. Culturally, the temple and the synagogues of Jesus' time had a programmatic way of caring for the poor. They would take collections and distribute according to need. The ESV doesn't really convey that super well here. It just says, when you give to the needy. But... Again, in the Greek and in other translations, it might say something like, when you give alms or when you do charitable giving. And this is what it's talking about. It's talking about a programmatic approach to caring for the poor. Okay, so in Deuteronomy chapter 15, this was set up. This was acknowledged. It says in verse 7 and 8, if among you, this is to the nation of Israel, thousands of years ago. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against the poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. So Deuteronomy 14 and 15, what we read right there and before, these were seen by the religious leaders of the time of Christ as biblical evidence to set up Programs to care for the needy and the poor. And that was good. That was all very good. A right reading of the text. But notice what Jesus says next in Matthew. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Here's our first mention of hypocrite. When we hear this word, we automatically think of the scribes and Pharisees. Maybe your go-to image is of a Pharisee, right? And we'd be right to do so. Jesus calls both the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites in Matthew 23, verse 13. But Pharisee isn't mentioned here. A much broader audience is in mind. Anybody can be a hypocrite. Anybody religious can be a hypocrite. Anyone motivated to give, to pray, or fast, to be seen by others, according to Christ, is a hypocrite. And so our understanding of the word hypocrite is slightly different than how Jesus is using it. We tend to think of a hypocrite as someone who says they believe something, but go against that belief in practice, right? Like a teetotaler who gets drunk on the weekends, right? That's a hypocrite. But Jesus, is, Jesus uses the word in its original sense, Hypocrite was another name for actor, for actor. Those who display their righteousness before others are really just play actors. 
Now, that's a key idea moving forward. Hypocrites to Jesus are actors. They don't have real righteousness. Like an actor in a dramatic play, pretending that he's something he isn't, are those who give in order to be seen by others. Like an actor putting on a costume of righteousness. That fits nicely into the image that Jesus gives us of a man who sounds a trumpet in the streets of the city before he gives to the needy. Now that's not an actual practice that happened. But it's a humorous image. Right? We can all picture some wealthy, well-to-do hypocrite tooting his own horn as he puts an offering in the basket. That's what Jesus is saying. I think of all the many activist celebrities and philanthropists who name their charities after themselves and give exorbitant amounts of money to those charities that really don't make any dent into their wealth at all in order to be seen as a good person by the world. I'm an actor and a philanthropist, so on and so forth. But it's not just celebrities Jesus has in mind here. Normal, everyday people can easily do this with their money. They can make this mistake. For instance, at the time of Christ, there was a law in place in Israel that prevented normal people from giving away more than 20% of their wealth because normal people wanted to look like they could give away a lot. And they were putting themselves into poverty. They wanted to be seen as a righteous person. We have these same impulses. Jesus doesn't want us to parade charitable giving around in order to be seen as a righteous person. He says that those who give like that will have already received their reward. Recognition. Rather, verse 3 says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. In a complete reversal of the common practice at the time, Jesus seems to be saying to Christians that they should be so secretive in their giving that their other hand doesn't know what's going on. Okay, again, that's a pretty funny picture. A skit where a guy is giving away like all of his money and his other hand doesn't know what's going on would fit really nicely into SNL. But the idea is really straightforward in verse four, so that your giving may be in secret. Our giving should not be a means to boast in our righteousness. It should be something we just do and then forget about. It should be so common to our hearts and in our everyday normal practice that it's like forgetting what you had for lunch. That's the idea. Now, there's a lot of practical questions about giving that we need to confront when we read something like this. Does giving in secret preclude tax receipts and giving statements at the end of the year? Does it mean we can't participate in silent auctions where we write our name down? All right, of course not. Again, the point is heart motivation. You can give without revealing how much or who you are and still have the wrong heart motivation. We can treat giving like an obligation, and we can hate it. We can resent it. We can treat giving like paying dues at a country club. We can treat giving like a way to outdo our neighbor like we're keeping up with the Joneses. 
all the while keeping our total amounts to ourselves and our names a secret. But our motivation should be the approval of our Father in heaven. And so Jesus says, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Giving is an act of worship. It's an act of devotion to the Lord. We should love God so much that it overflows in love for his people, even financially. We should give to the poor, to the needy, because the Father gave to the poor in spirit. All of us. Do we give in order to receive the approval and reward of the Father? Is that our actual motivation? Is it yours? Do we treat giving like a joyful opportunity to worship like we do our music? Or listening to the sermon? Or better yet, do we give at all? Our culture is a lot different in this area than in Jesus' time. We don't need a law preventing us from giving away more than 20% of our income. We're not really on that side of the imbalance. When we think of programs to help the poor, we don't think of temples and synagogues or even churches. We think of government programs and taxes. They already take our money automatically to help the poor. So why do we need to give to the needy? But this is a big mistake in thinking. There's all kinds of places where the government simply cannot reach. And the government is not the church. There are people who fall through the cracks and it's the church's job, not the government's, to be the salt of the earth and the light to the world. Amen? Part of being the salt of the earth, as we learned back in chapter 5, is caring for the poor and caring for the oppressed. We're called to make the world a better place, to taste better, to stave off the rot all around us. So each of us are called to give sacrificially. And in the New Testament, this works out through taking collections in the local church here today. Galatians 6.10 says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. We have an obligation to all people. A financial obligation, even. But Paul doesn't just say that. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's the church, the local church, the everyday church, Lake Morton Community Church. If we have poor and needy people in our church, we need to actively help them in many ways, financially included, with wisdom. But all of this implies that we are actually giving. Jesus doesn't say in verse 2, if you give. He says when you give. We are supposed to be a giving people. So how should we approach giving? Well, we should start by giving in partnership with others in the local church. This is the place to start, right here. We're going to do kingdom work here by the leading of the Holy Spirit and with your help. And if you believe in that, I'd ask you to give. And if you're a member of the church, I'd remind you of your obligation to make sure the lights stay on so we can do that work. We publish our budget numbers monthly in the bulletin. They're there today. Glance over to them. This year we're behind. We're falling behind. The numbers last year, last week, 
we're $19,000. That's what's in the budget today, $19,000 short. So we should start by supporting the local church. Leviticus 27 is kind of ground zero for how to do that or a principle when it says, you know, give 10% uh, because it all belongs to the Lord, which is a great place to start when giving to the church. And that may be difficult for some of us to get to. I want to recognize that today. 10% may be a difficult place to get to if you're struggling financially. There's no shame. There's no shame here. But we should treat that as a goal. Maybe it's a goal to set up as you budget over the next year. How can we get to 10%? But for those who are blessed financially, who don't have to worry about money that much, that's just a starting point. It was for the nation of Israel. They actually ended up giving about 30% of their income to each other. The church is given no hard and fast rule in the New Testament on giving, what percentage or what your goal should be, except this. Give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. Our budget that we set is achievable. Fine. But we don't have to stop there. We don't have to stop just with our budget. Often we'll have special offerings for the poor, special offerings for missionaries, and we encourage you to give to local ministries here in Lakeland and abroad that are alleviating the suffering of the poor and caring for the oppressed and spreading the gospel and so on and so forth. On top of our general budget, which we're not meeting, we have a missions budget, and that's over-the-top giving, over the top of your tithe. And notice those numbers in there too. Now, this might seem overwhelming to you if you're new to the church, okay? And I apologize. I don't mean to overwhelm anybody with talk of money. And I recognize we're often made uncomfortable about money. But as Christians, we recognize that anything we have is the Lord's, right? Or am I assuming we know that? Everything you have is God's. Everything you have is a blessing from the Lord. We shouldn't feel uncomfortable about talking about what's His, right? We should, instead, be what we say we are on our bulletin. Real people, real grace. And so this is real talk. Let's be real. We should be a giving people, a giving generous people, financially and with our time and with our talents. A people who worship God through their giving. Because as we see here, giving is an act of worship. Something to be done in secret before the Father. Do we approach it like that? Do we think of it like that? Let's worship the Lord even in how we set our budgets. Amen? Second, Jesus encourages Christians to find solitude in prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, it was common for Jews of the time of Christ to pray three to five times per day at regular intervals as the temple tooted out to those prayer times. They'd stop what they were doing, even if they were just walking in the street and turn toward the temple or the synagogue and pray. And the louder, the better, of course. Not secret little prayers told inside your brain. Loud for everybody to hear. Christians are not supposed to be like these play actors who only want to be seen for their loud prayers. And again, we read those people have received their reward, recognition. 
And instead, Jesus tells us, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, some detail is lost here in the English. Some translations say to go into your closet. If you have an older translation today, maybe it says that. And from this, we've started the practice of building prayer closets, which is cool. If you have one, that's cool. As long as it doesn't become a mode of pride, so you invite somebody over to your house to show them your big prayer closet, right? That's the opposite of what Jesus is getting at. And he's giving us another humorous, hyperbolic statement here, right? The only room in a Jewish household with a lock was the small innermost storeroom where you could barely fit because all your other worldly goods were stuffed in there. Jesus is saying, you stuff yourself in there, lock the door and pray. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now God, we're told, is uh, in secret here. Shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. I want to take a quick moment to talk about a very, well, an often forgotten doctrine that we can see right here. God is in secret. This doctrine is called the invisibility of God, the invisibility of God. You might say, Caleb, we know God is spirit. We know God is here and we can't see him. But that's not what the doctrine is about. God's invisibility is the truth that we can't know him unless he reveals himself. God is so other than us that we can't possibly know him unless he acts first. So Jesus tells us to meet in secret with the God who is in secret. The place to meet with God, to grow with God and commune with him is in secret because God is invisible. His invisibility, his in secretness is clearly displayed when we pray. I don't know about you, but God doesn't usually answer back to me. And yet we're called to talk to him out loud with words, to pray to the God who is in secret. And we're told this, your father who sees in secret will reward you. If our motivation to pray is to get with him in order to commune with him, that's the right motivation. The God who is invisible, who is in secret, will see the one who prays in secret. Praise the Lord. But Jesus gives us another example about prayer. Verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So we have the hypocrites in verse 5, who pray really loud in the street, Jesus is thinking of his fellow Jews here, maybe again the Pharisees. And in verse 7, we have the Gentiles, the pagans, who pray with a lot of words. They heap up empty phrases, thinking they'll be heard by their God. This is the approach of paganism. If we pray to many gods for a long time with much repetition, they'll have to hear us and give us what we want. In other words, Jesus not only precludes practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, he also precludes practicing righteousness in order to convince God to do something. That's the heart of paganism. 
to treat God like a genie or a servant who has to do what we say if we know the right command and the magic words. That is not God. That's paganism. And that's not how we should treat prayer. We shouldn't display our prayer lives to other people in order to be seen as a big prayer warrior. And we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that a lot of words will win God over. That's not how it works either. Jesus says, do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask. We don't need to be like the Gentile pagans who think they have, they have to remind God of their needs and, and heap mounds of words up upon him to convince him to act. God already knows. He already knows. Does that mean we don't have to pray if God already knows? Of course not. Jesus will give us a prayer to pray right after this. So stick, stick around. But it's, it's off that thought that we don't have to heap up many words in order to pray properly, that we get the model prayer or the Lord's prayer. He gives us five lines in that prayer, and that's it. So does all of this mean that we shouldn't pray out loud or shouldn't pray with other people or that we shouldn't have extended prayer times in church services? Are we wrong to have a prayer of confession before the sermon? No. Remember, Jesus cares about the heart. The question that I put to those men who come up here to pray is this. Are you more concerned with what people will think of your prayer than what God thinks. That's to the men who come up here to pray. And that, of course, goes for all of us. Jesus gives us a new starting point with prayer. Start with simple, secret prayers. If you don't pray, that's your starting point. He even gives you the words. Secret, simple prayers. Cultivate a heart that wants to pray in order to be heard by God, not by men. Again, it's a question of priorities and motivation. We see Jesus praying with his disciples and with a lot of people, and we see many places in the New Testament where the church is encouraged to pray together. So that's not what Jesus is concerned about. He's concerned about the heart. Of course he is. He always is. If the only time you pray is in front of other people like at church or in small group or for dinner, that's not a good thing. We should cultivate a life of prayer where we go to the Father simply and in secret all the time every day. If the only time you pray is with many repetitions and the same prayer over and over and in an attempt to convince God to act on your behalf, that's not a good thing either. That's the heart of paganism. If you think because you prayed for 30 minutes, God has to hear you and do what you ask, you're going against what Jesus is teaching. That's not what prayer is either. Prayer, like giving, is an act of worship. Something done before God in communion with him. It's a privilege. It's something we should desire, right? To meet with God, to commune with him every day. And we'll spend next week learning about it at length. So for now, number three, 
Jesus tells his followers to have hiddenness in fasting. Let's look down again to verses 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Once again, we see the hypocrites doing it all wrong. Fasting was a normal practice in Israel. The Pharisees would fast at least twice a week. And that's a good thing. Notice how Jesus says, and when you fast. In fact, each of the three disciplines are assumed practices for the followers of Jesus. Giving, praying, and fasting. As the church, as Christians, we give, we pray, and we fast. But what is fasting? How are the hypocrites doing it wrong? Fasting is not typically one of our go-to spiritual disciplines. Traditionally, a fast is a voluntary abstinence from all food and drink for a period of time. Simple enough. But it's been practiced in various ways throughout time, and there's all kinds of legitimate uses for fasting outside of those. One might fast from food or just a type of food for a period of time. One might even fast from something non-food related, like social media or cell phone. Fasting is done for various reasons in the scriptures. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness for a time of preparation. The nation of Israel was called to fast once a year over sin and guilt. Believers in Acts 13 and 14, we see them fasting as they worship and as they prepare to appoint leaders. So fasting is used for all kinds of things, but that's just it. It is a tool. Fasting is a tool that helps us Focus our hearts and minds on something the Lord wants us to do, whether it be preparation, repentance, worship, whatever it might be. It's a tool for something else. But here in verse 16, we see the hypocrites misusing the spiritual discipline of fasting. They fast in order to be seen as spiritual and righteous, right? For them, fasting was a sign of spiritual maturity, If people see me fast, they'll know that I am a good Christian, a good Jew at the time. In order to be seen as fasting, they wouldn't bathe. They'd put on dirty clothes and ashes on their head. and They'd wear this costume, literally a costume of righteousness, play acting their fast. But once again, they have their reward. Recognition from other people. That's all they'll get. Each one of these three, the reward that the people receive is what they want. Recognition. That's been the reward throughout our text today. If all we want is recognition from other people, that's all we'll ever get. If you give to be recognized, you probably will be, especially if you give a lot. If you pray really well, Somebody might come up and tell you, hey, great job, especially if that's your concern. And if in fasting, all we ever really want is recognition from other people, well, it's easy to make it seem like we're really spiritual, isn't it? Fasting is just one example of many ways we can put on a spiritual righteousness costume. And at this point, it's good to examine our hearts. Am I wearing a costume today of righteousness as I go to church on Sunday morning? 
But when you fast, Jesus says, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. The hypocrites displayed their fasting as a costume. Christians, on the other hand, are supposed to hide their fasting. They're supposed to bathe and actually take care of themselves. The mention of anointing the head would be just a, like putting on lotion, normal hygiene, anointing with oil, putting oil in your hair. That's all things that happened in the first century. Jesus is saying simply to keep up normal appearances. Don't display your fast. If you can't fast without letting someone else know about it, maybe you're not in the right heart space for it. But those who fast in secret receive a reward from the Father who sees in secret. This is the, the third time we've heard about a reward. So what is it? What is the reward for someone who practices righteousness the right way? Oh, that's simple. Those who really want to give in order to worship the Lord and care for the needy out of love for other people will be rewarded by seeing the needs of the poor men. Because that's what they want. Those who really want to worship the Lord through their prayers, who desire to meet with him and commune with him, get just that. A deeper relationship with the Lord and a cultivated prayer life. Those who fast so that they worship the Lord and prepare themselves for whatever he has, for them, the reward will be that preparation, that repentance, that wisdom, that plan, a fuller relationship with God. The Father himself, at the end, is our reward. God himself is your reward when you practice righteousness this way. And what else could you want He's the best possible thing we could get. If we give in order to get in return, like some false teachers would have us believe, then we really aren't practicing our righteousness properly. If we pray in order to convince God to act like those pagans or demand something from him instead of being motivated to pray in order to commune with him and get to know him better, then we're really not practicing our righteousness properly. If we fast so that others know how spiritually mature and how spiritually rich we are, instead of fasting in order to discipline our bodies and our flesh away from earthly things and toward the Lord, then, again, we really aren't practicing our righteousness properly. Jesus is concerned about our motivations. What motivates you? to give, or to pray, or to fast. Jesus did not die on the cross and rise from the grave so that his followers would be a bunch of little hypocrites play-acting their righteousness. That wasn't the goal. He died and rose so that we could have real communion with God and with each other. Amen? Righteousness starts in the heart where the Holy Spirit moves. And what Jesus is telling us today is let all three of these things start, be the, the starting line, be secrecy. If you never give, give, but don't toot it around. If you never pray, pray, but not in front of other people first. 
If you never fast, fast, but not so other people can know. The starting line is hidden. It's with God who is in secret. And the God who is in secret and who sees in secret will reward you. So let's be a people motivated by our love for God and not by our desire to be seen by others. And I'd call you if, if this idea has been personally convicting, I'd, I'd call you to repentance today. If you feel like your righteousness is usually more displayed than it is internal, it's time for some repentance. And that's a good thing. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Lord, we do repent of all of those times we're tempted to display our righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, not in order to commune with you or to draw closer to you or to worship you or even to love other people well, but only to be seen. We repent, Lord, because we we do this a lot. It's a constant temptation. We need your forgiveness and we need your guidance. We pray that you would change our hearts, that we would be a people motivated to love you first. Even if we have to start in a closet praying, we pray that you would draw us there to meet with you, our God who is in secret, immortal, invisible, all loving, all good. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.